something that I think is a huge challenge of the internet that we all experience is some of the anonymity, what's kind of static rather than synchronous. And so it's really easy to just like take a comment thread and put something down and write something that maybe you regret later and doesn't take the other person totally as a person who's in front of you. One of my hopes is that if we can get it right and that people build it right across the industry and across civil society and across governments, that the metaverse is actually going to bring some of the humanity back into digital and back into the internet. Welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we speak with inspiring leaders, innovators, problem solvers, and job creators, people across the country who are making the world a better, more sustainable place and making good money while they do it. I'm your host, Connor Gaughan, founder here at Consensus Digital Media, and today I'm talking with Brent Harris from Meta. I don't know about you, but when I see a news alert pop onto my screen, I sometimes get a little shiver. What doom or gloom might the notification bring? With technology empowering so much greater connectivity and access to information, it's also brought us the 24-7 news cycle, and at times, a little less empathy online. It can be easier to criticize or shout at an avatar on screen rather than treat one another as real people, neighbors whose humanity we value. Technology is an incredible and complex tool, one whose fate is determined not by ones and zeros, but by the people who make that technology and those of us consumers who use it. I can pinpoint real and meaningful examples of technology being a power for good in my life, and I can see the potential for the next generation of technology to continue to bring about incredible opportunities to make the world a better place. So I'm incredibly excited today to get to talk with Brent Harris, Meta's VP of Global Affairs, where he's charged with helping one of the world's most important companies answer some of their hardest questions. Questions about their role in the world, society, and democracy. And who's better suited to lead initiatives like the Oversight Board or figure out the power and potential of the metaverse to be a force for good than Brent? With a diverse resume that includes nonprofits, public service, and the private sector, Brent's entire career has one common thread. His work emphasizes that together, we can make a better world for future generations. And to do that, Brent believes it will require all of us working together today. It's no easy feat, but if any company's up to the challenge, it may just be meta. Brent, thanks for joining us today. Let's start from the beginning. Give us a little bit about yourself. Perfect. So I live in... Menlo Park right now in California, just turned 40, which felt like a really big milestone. We have a one-year-old, and my wife and I have three dogs, which feels like a lot. I <laughs> I mean, I, one dog is enough for me, let alone a one-year-old. I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, I recommend one dog, maybe two, but three dogs plus a toddler is pretty entertaining, I'll say that. <laughs> um, have you always been a uh, Silicon Valley guy? Are you... Silicon Valley born and raised? No. Um, so I was born in Norman, Oklahoma, and later actually also grew up in Athens, Ohio, which is uh, uh, Appalachia and uh, and kind of the coal country in a lot of ways of Ohio. And so being in Silicon Valley, uh, it, it often to me feels a little bit like landing on the moon. Uh, and so surrounded by Teslas and tech companies, and uh, that's that's a little different than the pickup trucks and country music where I grew up. That's a really interesting background for someone in Silicon Valley. How does it inform your perspective at work? Yeah. Um, so for me, a lot of it's rooted in how I grew up. And so I think a lot about 
whether it's on the environment work, the places that I got to be a part of and experience. When we lived in uh, in rural Ohio, I remember that you could walk out our back door and just keep going for days and hike through the woods. And there's actually this bobcat that lived back there in the woods too. And that was just this immensely important part of how I got to grow up. And so I've really been interested in how do you protect some of those places and how do you protect our planet? And so that was super important to me and I've tried to bring it into every part of my work. And at the same time too, in these places also, saw a lot of things also that are really challenging. And so how do you make sure that you have air quality and water quality and how do people have the opportunity to be healthy? And those are some of the things that have animated some of my, my life. And I can't imagine doing a job, doing work where you don't get to try to figure out how do you, how do you make a positive contribution to that? Let's step back and look broadly at your career path. Where did it all start? What was your first job? My first job was, I think, pretty unusual. I was somebody who I remember growing up and my dad would actually sit me down with the, you know, the old print paper and we would go through and look at the business section. And I was like, seven years old or maybe 10, you might remember this. Now they print the stock market prices and you could go through and you could look at that. And so I grew up with my parents talking to me about business and finance. And I will say New York felt a real world away from uh, from Oklahoma. But that actually led me down a path where I was a moderator for a discussion group on AOL. This was like 1996 or 1997. I think I was about 16. And the discussion group was on the stock market and about investing. And also, uh, I don't even think there was a word for it, but sometimes I would write then about the stock market. And so I was uh, like an early content creator. Yeah, I remember those boards and the early days of the internet. The world seemed to explode with new opportunities and potential. It was really formative for me in my personal life and eventually my career. So Where did that first job, I assume you were still in school, where did that take you next as you graduated from college? My very first job after college was in the nonprofit sector. And that was one where I was actually planning to go work for Goldman Sachs or go be an investor in some form. And I had this fantastic college professor, Laura Ariaga Andreessen, and I was a senior. And she sat me down and she said, you know, why don't you go meet this guy, Paul Brest, who was the president of the Hewlett Foundation. Um, and she introduced me to Paul. And Paul said, why don't you think about how you bring some of the rigor of investing into philanthropy and into social good? He made me an offer that was just fantastic, where he's like, why don't you help me figure out how we can do as much good as we can with this endowment, these resources, and with what we can give away? And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, how often do you get paid to give away money and just get to try to make as much of a difference as you can and turn down a bunch of those kind of private sector jobs. And that really set me on this path that was focused on social good. And from there, you go into government. So what were you thinking when you got that opportunity? I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to make kind of the West Wing my my life and my job. And so I was really lucky. I got called after law school to to serve uh, in the government and join the Interior Department. And the Interior Department was, 
you know, for somebody from out West uh, like you, it really mattered and it played a big role in people's lives. And so it meant a lot to go in. But the thing I learned, <laughs> which <laughs> you probably uh, like maybe always knew, I think maybe I was naive, was the West Wing to politics is a little bit like Instagram to real life. And so it was only the kind of the best, the best layer and the glossiest layer. And so I had a big wake up call on, you know, what is politics like and what is Washington like and how do you actually get policy done? Yet you kept coming back. <laughs> I think this is a theme for folks I know in public service that they really have a tough time shedding those ideals, the hope, the promise of making the world a better place. And you really did get some interesting stuff done. You had some really cool accomplishments. I spent a lot of my career focused on environmental policy. And so going in, serving in the in the Obama administration was a beginning of working on environmental policy. And some of the most kind of meaningful things there in my career were got called to to be a lawyer for the presidential commission on the BP oil spill. Later, had the opportunity to work on a number of big, hard environmental policy challenges around Indonesia. And, and so there was this, this kind of major crisis in Indonesia a few years ago where large parts of Indonesia were engulfed in fires. And those fires were so big, they were so severe that they were actually the leading cause of climate pollution across the world that year. And it was due to a bunch of work to clear what are called peat swamps, which aren't always the most glamorous places or the most touristy places. Um, but ecologically, they're really important places and they're really important places for communities. We had the opportunity to partner with the government of Indonesia and help them figure out how to stop that crisis and how to actually protect large parts of that country. And that was enormously meaningful to get to be a part of that. So much of your work has been really focused on good, doing good in the world. How did you make that shift from the public sector into the civil sector, into the corporate sector? Like you've kind of transitioned through all three. Tell us a little about that path. Yeah, it was only much later ended up coming back to the private sector and so had spent then kind of 10, 15 years around environmental policy and in civil society and in government. And through that work, based on work that I had done in California on the drought and on housing and climate um, and transportation policy, got to know Priscilla Chan, and so who's Mark Zuckerberg's wife. And Priscilla and Mark were thinking about how to build their philanthropy and how to make a real difference in their community. And they were very interested in the issues of housing in California and how to make a difference on those. So got to know Priscilla, who's an immensely brilliant and impressive person. And through that, got to know Mark as well. And through that, then in turn, actually met people at the company and was really interested in how do you make the best of some of technology? How do you actually shape the company and the private sector in a way that balances some of the things that are challenging about the company and about the products with making the very best of them? And so a lot of this journey has been rooted in getting to know some really amazing people and uh, and kind of following some of those people and finding ways to partner with them in order to try to make a difference. So then give us your current job. I guess, a little bit about where you're at now. Yeah, so I, I work at Meta. I lead our governance team and work on 
some of the kind of the hardest questions about who makes decisions about our products and about the policies that guide speech on our products and who gets to take those calls? How do they make those decisions? What guides, what principles guide those decisions? You're incredibly uniquely positioned at one of, you know, the world's most interesting and important corporations and have this background on knowing and understanding both the investing side of things and the sustainability side of things. And so you must be looking at the world going, okay, wow, like this is, this moment is, is truly remarkably unique. So how are you synthesizing and analyzing all the things you're seeing every day from your vantage point, which is so incredibly unique? One of the things that situates Meta uniquely as a company is that it serves over 3 billion people and it serves tens of millions of businesses. And so if you step back and you start taking a 10-year, a 20-year, a 50-year timeline on it, you actually find that when you serve that many people, you care a lot about how they're doing and you care a lot about that those businesses and that those people are succeeding and that you're finding a way to actually see them in a better position than where they might have otherwise been. And so that's that's the type of mindset that I'm trying to bring into business and, and try to make sure that we reflect in the work that we're a part of. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your perspective on opportunities for technology to have pro-social use cases, building or enhancing products that highlight the positive. How do you approach the opportunity for technology to do good in the world? Yeah, something that I find a lot is that you'll read in the news and and they'll cover what are the absolute kind of like worst case uses of these technologies. And we let the worst people end up actually guiding what the use cases are for these products. And so it's incumbent on us to be creative, to think about what are actually the most pro-social use cases? What are the best things that you can unleash and make possible? And the only way we'll ever get to a positive bank account with any technology is actually to find ways that you make those pro-social deposits and you figure out how to get as many people, as many organizations using products in ways that are good for society and good for people. would love to hear you reflect on some of the building blocks that you think have successfully been laid at Meta and what that is building towards and what your ultimate vision is for Meta as an agent for positive change in the world. So Meta's made a bunch of investments in integrity and content moderation and setting out community standards, ways that it really sets out how we approach some of the hardest issues of speech and how you balance free expression and giving people voice with safety. And so... That's one layer of a building block of in order to start to approach this, you need clear rules and you need to know who who is actually enforcing those rules. And and then you also build these product systems that allow you at a scale that any person actually can't handle alone to actually take them out and use the products in order to moderate speech across the three billion people who are using these platforms. And so that's that's one set of building blocks. One that I spent a bunch of time on and that my team has spent time on is a next building block, which is how do you actually build an oversight board? How do you decide how to go beyond just these decisions being taken inside of a private company. And so a few years back, we ended up running this big global consultation going across the world, asking people, 
How do you think that decisions should be taken on content on Facebook? And who do you want to make them? And the answer we got back was, well, it shouldn't be taken by a private company alone. And uh, I actually think some of what we're watching with Twitter right now just kind of highlights why, you know, you shouldn't have these swings of any one individual gets to make this call, whether that's Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey or Elon Musk or people we don't know yet who are going to run these companies or found these companies. And so what folks told us is that they wanted a global group of people. They wanted a diverse group of people to take these decisions. They wanted those people in some ways to share some of the life experiences they had, whether that was the country that they come from or the place of the country they came from or religious experiences that they wanted that group to be known so that they could figure out who made the calls on content moderation and that they wanted them to look to a really clear set of principles around what content is allowed and what content isn't and that they wanted to be able to appeal to those people and so take it beyond the private company and go to this independent group of people that was diverse that was under a set of principles and ask them to make a final call of what content is allowed. And so that's what we built. I think people in D.C. and in politics may be familiar, but for the vast majority of Americans, I suspect this isn't well-known or understood. So could you give us a short description of what the Oversight Board is, actually? The Oversight Board is a group of 23 people who come from across the world. They speak 25 languages. It uh, has a bunch of members who are Americans who were former judges and law professors. It includes a Nobel Peace Prize winner, a former head of state. It includes journalists and it includes advocates for freedom of expression and for human rights. And so they come together and that group of people has the final say about what content is allowed up on Facebook and on Instagram. And they have the final say on what content comes down. And anyone on the planet can take a decision to them and appeal into them if they feel like the company has made the wrong call about their content under our standards and under our values and ask the oversight board to come in and review that decision. And they sit under an independent trust. They are funded and endowed with a a set of resources completely separate from the company. They're not employed by Meta and the company cannot fire them. And so they are a final decision maker on some of our hardest and our most consequential content decisions. For the family in Norman, Oklahoma, that's sharing news and updates with with grandma, why does the oversight board matter? What is the kind of the rationale for Americans to really care about this? So the oversight board makes sure that we are and that the content that is on Facebook and on Instagram, that it lives up to the principles that we've set out for what's allowed. And so when you encounter these discussions and you ask, well, like, shouldn't this be up? And why was why was this content taken down or equally? And we find this on, you know, can be on the exact same post or on the same account. Some people are saying this should be up. Some people will be saying this should be down. It's a way of having a group of people who have no profit motive, who are there and their only uh, incentive is to try to make decisions that are principled and reasoned and transparent, look at values and say, okay, in the balance of freedom of expression and, and in safety, 
what's the right call here? And is that something that should be allowed? And when we did this, it was industry leading. No one else has ever done this before. It's the first board like this. We're actually starting to find that people across the world are calling for independent appeals boards like this to exist for social media. And the oversight board on its impact has already made a really big difference on this company. And some of the things that they've done are they have pushed the company to let people know when their content is taken down, what rule did you violate? And so not just that your content was removed, but you actually can look to one of the standards and say, actually, this was the standard that uh, that the company felt like it didn't meet. And they've also pushed the company to make those standards available in the languages that are spoken by the people who use our services. And so just in the last two years, based on guidance that the board has provided and recommendations that they've made, we've translated those standards into languages that are spoken by 400 million people. And so when you use our products and services, and if you care about freedom of expression or you care about safety or interested in the balance of both, a key part of that is actually having really clear rules, rules like the rules that you have when you're driving your car or driving your truck and you know what's what's allowed and what's not. And so the oversight boards made a big difference in making sure that we're publishing those standards and rules that are spoken by all the people who use our products. And that when you violate something that you know what you violated, and that if you think that you're unfairly targeted or that the wrong decision was taken by this company, that a really credible, thoughtful group of people actually have the final say and that it's not a private company that has the final say on whether or not that piece of content is allowed. So how has that been received? I know Meta faced fair criticisms and challenges as you rolled out various rules, solutions, and products. You know, what's been the reaction to this? So a bunch of people say, well, we're glad you did that. And then they come in and they say, well, like it doesn't solve this and it doesn't solve that. And I think that gets incremental progress. And the oversight board is something that fundamentally is a step forward. It is better than what existed before it. And it's something that I would really say is something that people should believe in and celebrate as progress, not just for this company, but something that should be expected across this industry. And we should actually use that progress to stack and build up additional progress that's taken on these issues, these incredibly consequential issues for society that we're all reading about in the papers or experiencing personally. I think it's an example of it's not going to solve everything, but it is one part of a set of steps that need to be taken in order to really make a big difference for for everybody. So staying with Meta, you really are the tip of the spear in terms of innovation and vision. Uh, And so I want to jump into some of the kind of forward-looking stuff that I think excites people. And, And let's start with the big term that I think everyone describes differently and understands differently and defines differently. But who better than someone at Meta to give their explanation or their definition or their theory on what the metaverse actually is? So there's a bunch, I think, that we know about what the metaverse will be. And there's a bunch that's going to be invented and created over the next decade and the next two decades. And so things we know, we know that it's going to be 
immersive. We know that you're going to have this feeling that you are a part of something rather than just looking at a screen. We know that there's going to be this sense of presence. And so you will go into a space, and some of this is possible today in something we have called Horizon Worlds and Horizon Workrooms, where you can go in and you can take meetings with people and you can be in spaces with people in a virtual reality space and feel like you are there with them in a way that right now we're on Zoom. It's really different to just kind of look at you as a screen compared to feeling like you're there and being able to read body language and be able to have a side conversation or walk up to a whiteboard together, even if we're not in the same place. And so those are some of the things that are possible today and are going to be more possible every single year going forward. And we see this as the next phase of the internet. And so it's going to be something that feels a lot more like everyday life and where you are interacting with other people. It seems like in the idealistic version of the metaverse, we're really looking at something that is systemic and truly visionary and all-encompassing. And, and and to do that is going to require more than just one of the world's largest and most important technology companies, but everybody. <laughs> and so I want to hear your take on who needs to be at the table, what needs to happen if we're going to realize this incredible opportunity we have in the metaverse in the future. It's really important to call out the metaverse is not going to be meta. And the metaverse is going to be built by a bunch of people. And it's going to be built on, uh, in many ways, on the rails of the internet. And so you're going to get that ability across many different people and many different organizations coming together to find a way to bring this into being. And so it's really important to build the metaverse through these partnerships and partnerships, as you say, that are not just the private sector, but also include civil society, include government, and include everyday people as well and their views of what they want to see created. And by a bunch of organizations coming together, it's going to have to be built in ways that are interoperable and where you're able to visit multiple worlds and take your sense of who you are into these different spaces. And for us as a company, some of the things that we're doing are We've set out a set of principles for what we stand for and how we want to take our part of it and how we build the right way. We are building governance in as a foundational layer and from the ground floor. So what does that look like in practice? Give us some examples of how we can think about the metaverse when it comes to rules and, as you say, governance. One of the things that I'm most excited about for uh, governance in the metaverse is that it actually enables new forms of deliberation and new forms of governance that just were not easily possible in the past. And so when you think about a world, how do you give the creator of that world power to help set what the guidelines are and to make it safe? How do you, in public spaces, have the opportunity to hear from people who are going to be in them? And actually, can you give them a means by which they deliberate together and they come together and they think through how do they want this comments to be governed and what do they want the rules to look like and what do they want enforcement to look like? And so really excited for both the ability to take time and to learn from a bunch of what has come before 
and also excited about how the metaverse is actually going to unlock new forms of governance that allow us to be able to empower more people with how we set the rules and how those rules are enforced. What I focus on and how I think about the world, I'm particularly excited about the opportunity for the metaverse to empower more good, to change the world for the better, to help people in in new and profound ways. And so I'm curious how you think about that. What are the opportunities that you see or that Meta sees for the metaverse to break down barriers and empower positive change in the world, be it in climate and sustainability, in economic empowerment, in education, a lot of what gets me excited about the metaverse is is really very personal. My mom, when I was growing up, was disabled and she was confined to a wheelchair. And when we lived in Athens, Ohio, she wanted to do a job that they said that she was qualified for. Um, and this was before the Americans with Disabilities Act and before there were curb cuts and before there were elevators and buildings and things like that. Everybody agreed it was a great job for her, but it was on the second floor. And she never ended up being able to do that job. And so what excites me about the metaverse and what excites me about some of the new technology that's coming is that it does actually break down physical barriers. And so you and I could be having this conversation and feel like we are together as though we're actually in a workplace in a way that's just not yet totally possible today and certainly wasn't possible back when my mom was looking for a job in Athens. And I don't think any of us actually fully appreciates yet just what the power of breaking down those physical barriers is going to be and what that's going to do, not only for people who are disabled, who may be able to access jobs that they otherwise couldn't have ever had and see places that they never could have actually otherwise seen, I think it's actually going to be really a big deal for economic empowerment. And so I think that breaking down the physical barriers is going to be a really profound change for opportunity for people. Yeah, actually, I was reading a book last weekend, The Psychology of Money, that describes this thin line between risk and luck and how it can either result in incredible good fortune or misfortune. And the one example that sticks out was that Bill Gates and Paul Allen were two of three friends that grew up in Redmond, Washington together, learning code. The third, Kent Evans, both claimed was smarter and equally, if not more incredible as they were. And tragically, Kent passed away in a rock climbing accident. Risk robbed him of the good fortune his two friends enjoyed, and who knows where technology and computing might be now if that accident had never happened. So it's just a fascinating framework to consider. But I digress. Let's get back to the metaverse. I want to talk about sustainability and the environment. What sorts of opportunities does the metaverse bring for positive change in those arenas? So there, there are a bunch, and I think we're all kind of figuring out to some extent what some of them are. But one of the things that I think is actually really exciting is the opportunity for people to feel a part of and visit and understand places that they otherwise couldn't. And so you could go to and feel a part of whether that's Yosemite or Yellowstone or the peat swamps in Indonesia, which are incredibly hard to get to, <laughs> like really challenging. Um, that ability to actually go out and visit and experience some of these places, I think it's going to be immensely empathy building and allow people to actually feel a part of environments and a part of places that are really hard for them to access. And so that's something that's going to be a big deal yeah. The empathy thing is such an 
a interesting framework to think about this because it almost feels like this is how we begin to solve the tragedy of the commons, right? By bringing everyone into everyone else's spaces so that we can all understand that the one action we take actually affects all the other places in ways that collectively we can't understand or, or conceptualize right now. It's such a powerful, I think, opportunity in general to think about the, the empathy framework. To some extent, what we seem to be living through is actually partly a crisis of empathy. And so a real kind of absence of empathy at times um, across our country and at times across the world. And and so how much is that actually contributing to some of the challenges I think that we're seeing right now in, in our politics and our society and our technology? And that often actually, because we don't actually at times first bring an effort to understand what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes that that actually leads to people talking past each other and misunderstanding people well beyond where if they sat down and they kind of reasoned it out or deliberated it out or or took kind of a little bit more of a moment rather than just kind of arguing their view that we would end up with something different and something better often like there's there's a part of things and a part of some of the criticisms or the feedback or the perspectives people bring where like everybody's right and there's ways actually to reconcile that and so when it comes to you know speech on facebook um you know there's a bunch of voices that are really loud that we should be standing for freedom of expression that we should be really concerned about censorship. We should be concerned about censorship if that comes from a private company or from an individual or from a government, because people actually, and they have a human right to this, have a right to express themselves and to identify themselves. And in turn, there's also a bunch of people who are really worried about harm and really worried about safety, really worried about inclusion, and that that's a legitimate concern as well, and that we need to bring empathy to their experience that while I have a right to get to express myself, there's also a right, I think, for people to feel like they can actually participate in certain spaces and that they can actually be a part of those dialogues or that they can have opportunity and that also that they can be free from actual violence or from actual harm. I think there's so much more that technology has to offer in terms of elevating our opportunities to share in one another's lived experiences. I know you had had some really interesting, great examples around like what the metaverse could do to elevate that and to actually how that could impact the world. Empathy, I think, is a, a means to actually understand the different perspectives that people bring to bear. Um, and I think it actually can result in greater understanding and find that there are actually common solutions to different types of problems that on their face might seem actually in opposition, but there's sometimes ways to square the circle. That's one thought on it. And I think we talked about this, but on the metaverse, I do think that it does provide that opportunity in a couple different forms. One is the one is the opportunity to actually see people next to you and see people across from you and to engage in a debate that is synchronous and live and not just comes at you via these you know, somebody posts and then an hour later, somebody else comments. It's very different, I think, to actually have the opportunity to ask people questions or see face to face what, you know, their experience is of a matter or an issue. And 
It also, I think, gives people a power to experience things that they otherwise wouldn't have experienced. And so when you think about avatars, you could put people in a situation, they could experience a situation through somebody, literally somebody else's shoes and somebody else's eyes. And I'm not sure we totally know yet what comes from that, but that's actually, it makes possible some forms of empathy and some means of empathy that just weren't, I think, weren't possible today, weren't possible without some of the new technology that we're starting to see come into life. Awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for the time. Thanks for all the thoughtful questions. Huge thanks to Brent Harris for such a compelling conversation. Consensus in Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchell and Chandler Bramstead. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. And special thanks to Consensus Creative Director, Kate Tucker. See you next week. Don't forget to rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. 